Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Drew Baker, and it is my joy to welcome you to episode 115 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Come to the table, pull up a chair. We're glad to have another conversation, and I am thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with today's guest, who's written a phenomenal book on an important topic for today's Christians. As you've noticed, Kevin and Tina are not here. Uh, I get to have this conversation with you. They couldn't make it, but uh, I think we will have a wonderful conversation. I'll be introducing our guest in a moment, but first, last week, we announced that we are going to end this supporting the CGU Patreon channel. We realized that this effort created a mission drift. Our mission is to create spaces for Christians to gather so that we might recognize Jesus in one another. We began creating content to build financial stability, and and this is a move to stay on mission, to offer better free content and trust God with our financial stability. You can find a link to John's letter in the show notes. On September 1st, we've got an exciting thing coming up. It's the Healthy Church series. Uh, We're going to drop episodes every other Friday, and we have guests like Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, the authors of A Church Called Tove. We have Mike Cosper from The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. We have Chuck DeGroote, author of When Narcissism Comes to Church. And we also have Kyle Spears, Stan Granberg, Randy Lowry, Kent Smith, Todd Vaught, and many more. But today I'm thrilled and excited to welcome Jeannie Shaw to the podcast. Jeannie Shaw has more than 47 years of ministry experience. She received her MA in Christian Spirituality and Formation and will defend her dissertation for her Doctorate in Spiritual Formation and Discipleship in October. She's the author of 17 books, and today we're going to discuss her book, The View from Paul's Window, Paul's Teachings on Women. To learn more about Jeannie and her work in spiritual formation, we invite you to listen to episodes 74 and 75 with Jeannie and Rhonda Lowry. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Is there anything you would like to add to that uh, biography? Anything we th- you think we oh, need wow. to know about you? <laughs> I uh, am a continual learner. I love to teach, but I love to learn. So I am, uh, my next birthday, I turned 70. And, um, you know, I feel like I've been learning more this past decade than I have the, the ones before, but it's a great, great journey. I'm trying to put all of this together. I recently uh, uh, started Christian coaching practice and, oh, wow. um, and, and also studying uh, for certification in spiritual directing. So those, it's like a, um, they fit together well because I want to be able to use the things I've been able yeah. to learn to really benefit um, to, to bring glory to God, but to benefit others. Excellent. Wonderful stewardship of, of what you've been, been given and, and handing that on to others. That's great. So Jeannie, it seems as if you've been on a journey regarding the w- role of women in church leadership. 
bringing you to a place that's quite different from where you started. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your journey and what, what is it that compelled you to write this book? <laughs> yes, um, as I shared in the book, it actually um, it was unexpected. Um, I was asked to teach in uh, a Bible school in, in Europe, and they were teaching different things from First Timothy, and I was given part of um, assignment, and it was the verse of she'll be saved through childbirth. And I thought, what in the world? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. And I had stuffed these things and just thought, okay, I have, you know, we'd never really focused on them at church. I just mm-hmm. took on an assumption. And so I figured I'd better dig in and start studying. And the thing that hit me is I started reading different scriptures is I thought, now, why why have I believed this part of the scripture and not believed this part of the same chapter? How do, how do I take, how do I take some things literally and not really understand the literature, the (laughs) behind it um, and, and not other things literally, how do I have this selective literalism? And so as I began studying, I thought, I just, I want to, I want to understand this better. And then I had to take some deep dives right. into uh, the the culture of of the the times, and I came to realize, wow, as a as a Western person growing up in the time uh, I did, there is so much, yeah. so much richness that I've missed from not understanding <laughs> the ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, how you know, really the the thinking. Uh, from what we can understand, even from other literature that uh, was was in the audiences of those times, the issues that they were that yeah. they were dealing with. Um, you know, I started even going back to Genesis. I thought, now wait a minute, these people understood some similar things about creation, but talk, but they were polytheistic. They had views of many gods, and yet this was written to something they could understand and that they related to. So, yeah. It opened up doors. Yeah. It, uh, one, there was one other thing. <laughs> and during that time, too, there was so much um, unrest on racism in our country. Uh, not that there hasn't been for years, but I started doing some reading on uh, things I was never taught in my American history growing up in the South. And it really shook my world as mm-hmm. to things I had not understood about history. So that's when I also wanted to go back to restoration movement history uh, to realize how much I've been shaped by history, but I haven't explored it enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the uh, things that is common in our movement is uh, we're kind of mm-hmm. orphans, self-made orphans. We, uh, A lot of times we we don't understand the history of what brought us to this point And uh, I think it's very refreshing the perspective that you uh, provide in this book to help us understand uh, what these talk- texts are talking about. Uh, one thing that I really love what you said is in chapter one, you say, we know by compiling and learning Jesus's teachings that the attitudes of the heart are always his central focus. So with that in mind, and I love the way you say that, uh, can you help us understand what what are some of the attitudes of the heart that you see being played out in scriptures like 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14, um, when he's talking about silence and restrictions, what's the attitude and heart behind that? And 
maybe speak to how we can attend to these same attitudes of the heart today? I think one thing that was evident to me, the more I read Paul, is just his deep desire to see Jesus preached and to have the church be something that is a bright light to the world. And, you know, I, I think just his whole discourse in 1 Corinthians 9 of just saying, you know, though I'm I'm free, I make myself a slave to become, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to the weak, I became weak, so that by all possible means, I might win some. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I love, I love that. And I think too, um, one of my husband's favorite script, his favorite scripture, not one of them, his favorite scripture was from First Timothy one five. You know, it's before we get into the First Timothy twos, <laughs> but Paul <laughs> right. says the aim of this charge is love. It springs from a pure heart, yeah. a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. And then First Corinthians, yeah. you know, eleven and uh, fourteen, right in, in the midst of that is this beautiful discourse on love. And I think sometimes we can forget the goal and get focused on picking apart things that are perhaps not what the biggest issue of what Paul was addressing was about. Yeah. Yeah, especially love that First Corinthians chapter 9, where he specifically says, I change exactly. based on who I'm talking to because I want to make sure everyone can come to the gospel. I want to remove all these obstacles and stumbling blocks between people and Christ. And in his day, you know, he addresses some of those things. We may have some different things today. Uh, what some of those obstacles arise from the the way that women were treated and held to different standards in those cultures. There was, uh, you know, as if you've studied, you know, the New Testament world, uh, many of us know that, yes, there are many overlapping cultures. There's the Jewish culture, there's the Greek culture, there's the Roman culture. And and you bring up that and as well as uh, Crete, you know, the, the culture in, in Crete and how how women were viewed differently in those. Uh, one of the things you discuss is the new women, uh, the Roman phenomenon of the, of the new woman uh, kind of trend that was going on there. Uh, specific cultural context in Corinth and Ephesus. And um, there's all kinds of things that are being talked about, head coverings and clothing and hairstyles and um can you just give us a brief overview of what are some of the most important things for us to remember about the culture of that day that affects what Paul's saying and why he's saying it? I think remembering that he was speaking to a particular culture and how they operated, what their laws were, how they understood things during that time. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's easy to, I think, assume that because something is in the Bible a certain way that that is the way God intended it to be. Whether it, you know, yeah. we look at so much of, there's so much about kings and then there's a lot of violence. <laughs> we know that actually earthly kings weren't God's plan. He allowed them. <laughs> um, a patriarchy, we assume, oh, well, this was a patriarchal culture. So that must be God's desire. Was it? Think of some of the things that have resulted. Uh, God was able to use it. Obviously, the story of Abraham, my goodness, where would we be with without that? But at the same time, oh my goodness, there was uh, you know polygamy, misogyny, uh, I just all kinds of, of laws where 
uh, there was mistreatment of one another. You know, it's funny. I even think of one of my favorite parables, this excuse from Paul, but it goes back to Jesus and uh, speaking to the culture of the day. You know, Luke 17 is the parable of the unworthy servant. And I remember reading that because I, I love that. That's how I feel, which I am an unworthy servant. Yeah. But Jesus speaks to the crowd and he says, you know, wouldn't you say if there was a servant, uh, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink so that you may eat and drink? Uh, will he thank the servant because he, what he, he, he did what he was told to do? And I read that and I said, well, yeah. I would thank the servant and I would have him come sit at my table and eat and drink because Jesus, that's what you taught me. <laughs> you taught me to do that, uh, to the, the last will be first and the, you know, to offer that. And yet he's teaching a group of people that have a certain culture and way of thinking. It's not saying this is the way this is supposed to be. We know that from how he taught, yeah. but. But that whole idea of speaking into the culture, I think, is so important. Yeah, I love that. That definitely reveals a lot of the difference between, you know, because we who've been formed and even secular culture has been so formed by Christ that we don't even know where we get ideas of like, yeah, we need to treat people with respect regardless of their status and stuff like that. Um, but in that day, that that wasn't necessarily the case. And so... Yeah, that's yeah. that's an important difference yeah. that is being addressed. You know, John Mark Hicks, he ta- uh, I, I love what he's and, and others have said about the letters were written not to us, but for us. And I was thinking about that mm. as I was, uh, this was after I published the book, but I, I asked, I was thinking about uh, speaking into different cultures and what you mentioned, the, the Roman culture, the Greek culture, the culture at Corinth, the culture at Ephesus, the new woman, all these things that were going on. And I asked my, my granddaughter who's 20 now, and, and she was 18 at the time. I said, could you just write me a paragraph from your generation of what might be difficult from my generation? And we're both Americans from the same family. And if you'd humor me, I'd love to share this because I think it gives a, yeah, an illustration of how difficult it can be to understand what was going on in some of the writings and cultures. Though, hands down, God gives us what we need to know. I believe that 100%. But so she wrote this in response to a made-up scenario about how uh, being given a certain grade at school. Yo, my teacher was being such a force today, like, bruh, no wonder she ain't cuffed yet. She's legit such a Karen. She said I'd lose 20 points off my grade for submitting my report a minute late. I thought she was capping, but turns out she was spitting facts, so I had to finesse it using spark notes. I low-key thought the paper turned out fire after dough. Went to the mall so I could flex on the class how professional I looked for the report presentation. Went to present it in class the next day, drowning in my new drip, looking snatched, but the teacher was acting so sus. My presentation was sick, though, so IDK why she was being sketched. Bad vibes all around, no cap. She legit didn't look up once from her desk while I presented, then gave me a 60. Like, bruh, I was mad salty. IDK why she was throwing SM shades, so I called her out after class. Turned out she didn't think my dope fit was appropriate attire, SMH, because it was too casual. 
I literally look so dope though. Like mom jeans and a crew neck give boss vibes only TBH. Like if you never saw the fit, I think you'd show me Harry Styles over you. I pointed out the rubric never said attire mattered. Then she finessed my grades. Savage moves only for disqueen period T. Grades all Gucci now. Next class is lit. So we be vibing. Next teacher is the goat. I think that's all the tea, but I'll keep the squad posted if teacher rages at me anymore. Peace out, fam. <laughs> wow. I have two teenagers in my house, and I understood about a quarter of that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. So that's, yeah, that's uh, unfamiliar language to uh, people my age and older, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> Great illustration. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I know, you know. I, I say that some in jest, but also things on head coverings and veils and the Roman laws, the listeners of those letters know exactly what Paul was talking about. Whereas we're like, what? I want to bring the conversation to probably one of the most troublesome or contentious uh, passages in this conversation. Um, one of my biggest turning points came a long time ago when a recent guest on our podcast, Mike Cope, preached a sermon on women in leadership in the church. And I remember the first time I listened to this, I was red in the face, angry, because in my mind, he was just taking scripture and saying, we're not going to pay attention to that. We're just going to toss that aside. We don't want to do that anymore. And so I was angry. And I, so I feel a compassion for people who are in that place because I know, I know what it's like to be in the position to have such a love and respect for Scripture that it makes it hard to see how can you read this verse. And I'll read it in a, in a minute. Um, how can we read that and then do what appears to be the exact opposite? So let me read this. First Timothy 2.11 through 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, I know that my journey has led me to a different understanding of that text. It took me maybe three or four times reading through Mike Cope's sermon before I was able to set aside the anger and realize, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. But let me, I want to hear more about your journey. How did, how did your journey of understanding change as you read this scripture? Yeah, and thanks for sharing that experience. Because honestly, there was, I, I had a similar experience. I've grown up in the Church of Christ uh, from my infancy. You know, then I was part of the International Church of Christ, I was part of Crossroads where my dad was an elder. And, um, you know, it's funny, I even remember some times there when as a college student, we were having devotionals and women were, and men were praying. And uh, some people called it out, no, you can't do that, you know, in the same place. And I remember my dad, who was an elder, said, well, wait a minute, what, you know, in Acts, the men and women went up in the room together and were praying together. And so it's, I do have, um, you know, it's hard to go from like, wait a minute, because I deeply, as you do, respect the scriptures. I love the scriptures. 
so what does this even mean? Um, and there are so many things in that scripture. I mean, there are books and books written just from that one passage of scripture from, you know, yeah. like I started with what in the world does this mean being saved through childbirth? <laughs> um, right. I, there are a number of very, I think, important things to understand from that. And one is that in that time, the women didn't have the opportunity to learn. They were separated from from being students of the word. I think that's why even Mary, when she was with Jesus and chose to be sit at his feet, that was so profound to sit at the feet of rabbi. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that mm-hmm. could cost her her reputation. It, it, it's, I believe it's much more about that than about uh, organizing food yeah. or, or who was working hard in the kitchen. I, I believe it was that, wow, she's choosing to sit at the feet and learn from yeah. Jesus. Um, even, even when my husband went to grad school, um, it was uh, in, one of our, in one of our schools, women weren't allowed to major in Bible. And even in, mm. I, I've talked to many younger women who said, why should I do that? You know, there's no, there's no, what would I do with that? Um, so I think the whole Paul's teaching on, on women learning uh, was was quite huge. Um, I, I, I yeah. think too. We don't know all that was going on in Ephesus at the time, but we do know some things from the Book of Acts that there was uh, such a, a following of uh, Diana or Artemis that um, there was even a riot of in the that was described in the Book of Acts of long live Artemis, you know, and. Um, she was the queen of uh, the goddess of fertility, and and the folklore mythology, you know, would would have men castrated. Uh, there wasn't a real love for for men, <laughs> but in in followings of uh, Artemis, you know, there was a, a I think a likelihood that women were really disparaging of men and following the the goddess. Tiana uh, took on a lot of of thinking of taking over. Um, I don't know if you've seen the the Barbie movie, but it goes back and forth with <laughs> Barbie taking over, uh, Ken taking over. But you know, just uh, it's really good actually. Uh, um, just you know, the whole idea of taking over is I don't believe is anywhere in in God's plan. But it seems in mm-hmm. Ephesus that certainly. Uh, could have likely been with what was going on there with the cult of Artemis, uh, yeah. women who were taking over, who were taking over the uh, eldership, who were just taking over uh, in a very authoritarian way, authoritative way that was yeah. showing disrespect. Um, certainly that can be, that might be, I think it's very plausible, something that was happening. But in the culture of that, of the day, it was very different than what we experience now. Paul, in all of these addresses, in Timothy and in Corinth, he was addressing some false teaching. His correctives were to address things that had gone awry. There was a lot of false teaching. I, I mentioned a number of those in my book, things that were going on during that time. Uh, I, I believe this was the atmosphere, the, the background of things he was addressing. And again, depending on what he was saying and using it for, there are different places where Adam 
being the one whose sin uh, is is brought out rather than Eve being blamed. You know, yet so much yeah. is being built on who sinned first. The the creation account. Um, I believe so much of this goes back to the book of Genesis uh, in the beginning too. But yeah, uh, who was created first was used at different times by Paul for for different settings, and even in First Corinthians. After talking about who was created first and who who came first, he switches it and says, "Nevertheless, in the Lord, uh, instead of being so precise about a woman coming from man, he also says, but man came from woman, and we all come from God.' So, yeah. was he really trying to yeah. delineate a pattern of worship, or was he trying to correct false teaching and create?" Yeah. Uh, an atmosphere of love and unity and respect for each other. And a lot of that goes back to how we interpret the Bible and the pattern hermeneutic that I believe at least I grew up with. And I think many in the restoration movement did. Yeah. I love that. Cause you know, in one sense, people can read Paul's writings and think he is wishy-washy on things. You know, like you mentioned here in first Timothy, he's talking about Adam being formed first then Eve, and it was because of Eve sin. And, mm -hmm. but in Romans it says, well, sin yeah. and death came through Adam. Um, well, which is it, Paul? He's not interested in that. He's interested in showing us the gospel and, and connecting us with Jesus. And so he uses these, these texts in different ways that, may make our modern scientific mind, you know, kind of queasy, but it's like he is trying to lay out all of scripture in a way that shows that Jesus is the one who brings wholeness and peace through, through that humble uh, submission and mutual service. And, um, but yeah, you try to pin him down on, on who sinned first, you're going to get confusing answers. You get, try to pin him down on well, what do you think about circumcision? Yeah. One place he says, you know, how dare you Galatians try to enforce circumcision? Then he tells mm -hmm. Timothy, hey, you should get circumcised. And, well, what's your stance? He's trying to remove these barriers uh, between people and Christ. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Once you understand that, it's like opens up a whole new world of understanding what Paul is doing. And um, but yeah, uh, so another one of those juxtapositions seems to be in 1 Corinthians 11 yes. and 14. You mentioned 1 Corinthians 11. We have women praying and prophesying. Um, I once you know, was talking with somebody about, you know, how can you prophesy while or pray and prophesy while silent? I was like, well, maybe they're just praying in their heads. I was like, but you can't prophesy oh. in your heads. You know, like that. This is a public ministry um, in the context of church. Um, and so you've got that. And then in chapter 14, you've got women you know, you need to be silent or, you know, ask your husbands at home. So how does, how does that fit together? I'm going to assume that Paul is not of two minds. He has a singular focus. So, so how do those fit together? I think, in your mind? again, he's addressing a particular problem that's going on in the church. It is, uh, again, I think we would have a hard time today thinking we get fellowship with the church of Corinth. <laughs> Right, But, uh, you know, um, I think it's important to remember all of this controversy about this is in the discussion about tongues and interpretation and spiritual gift, which we like um, don't even mention. <laughs> but that's it's right. correctives within that whole discussion. Um, and mm. uh, and again, and out of control, you know, what, what would 
what would the world come in? Because this is one thing on Paul's mind. He says it's so out of order that when a non-Christian comes in, are they going to see Christ? And again, I think this is so much in Paul's mind. We want uh, the heart of, of Jesus to be the thing that is is seen. Um, again, yes, uh, women were praying and prophesying. Uh, you know, they were, uh, it was a big issue of being veiled or, or not veiled and, uh, you know, men raising holy hands and, uh, and not having their head covered and long hair and short hair and things that uh, are culturally different for us today. Although we carry some of them over, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I still notice, and this isn't derogatory at all, because it's it's just to say, where does this come from? I always note, since I was studying this, that when men tend to pray in public and they have a baseball cap on, they take it off. Why? Uh, and then if, if they do that because of going back to these uh, interpretations from 1 Corinthians 11, then go ahead and give it to the sister next to you if she's going to pray and, and let her pray, you know, let her put that on. But I don't think that's what Paul was getting at. Uh, again, mm-hmm. the cultural norms of, of that day, um, there was a lot that was said when a woman was speaking and wasn't veiled. Um you know, prostitution. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that came to mind when you were talking about the head coverings that, that I'd never uh, heard before, or at least it didn't stick with me until I read it in your book. Um, but how it was like a, a sign of availability. Um, it's like, um, I forget which book was, uh, or what movie is Bruce Willis that begins and you see him on a plane and an attractive woman sits next to him on the plane and he takes oh, his wedding wow. ring off. And he puts it in his pocket that that's what uh-huh. came to mind when I'm reading what it was like for women to go out without a veil. It was like, they're saying, Hey, I'm available. Um, and one that was, it could be seen as seductive, like the pro- prostitution, or it could just make you vulnerable right, right. Um, to, to the aggression of, of men in the culture. So that was very mm-hmm. enlightening. And I really appreciate yeah. your insight there. And I think the, you know, the, uh, one of Paul's teachings and uh, I think it's First Corinthians seven is, you know, is about that men and women each a husband and wife each has authority over their own bodies and they give it up, right. and the the sexual yeah, relationship one for each other. But you have to have uh, that over your body to give it up. Uh, um, yes. Yes. But uh, again, um, you can, like you say it can you can read those two scriptures and think they're so contradictory. And yet that's why mm-hmm. you've got to look at the context of what is Paul trying to accomplish. And I'm not saying I know what Paul's trying to accomplish. I wasn't there. None of us were there. We do our best through uh, things written on tombstones, through archaeological findings, through uh, literature, through that day to try to find more about the culture. But we weren't there. And yet something was very different than what we experience today and there were problems that were going on very specifically that were hindering what in that culture it showed 
it, 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 it showed about Jesus. You know, there, there right. could even be in culture today, um, would it hinder or help the cause of Christ for, uh, <laughs> for people to, to witness and view, no, I'm over you. Um, you know, what mm-hmm. would, what would show Jesus more? And again, I am not in any means wanting to belittle or take as unimportant. Uh, it's the word of God. But I believe how we, how we view it, the, the hermeneutic that we use, the lenses we use, uh, we so revert to a pattern of man's examples and inferences in so many ways that make it difficult to see beyond that and even to explore other, other possibilities. I love that that it comes th- it comes through throughout the book that you have a deep love and appreciation for scripture and you have a deep compassion for people who see things differently from you um, and you know a lot of these differences aren't because the scripture is different or some of us are reading this part and some of us are reading that it's this idea of hermeneutics which in your book you do a great job explaining what is exegesis and you know hermeneutics and this what we've been talking about is how do we apply these principles to today. Um, can you share a little bit of your thoughts? What are some hermeneutical principles um, that that you value or and how that relates to the uh, hermeneutics you grew yeah. up with in the restoration? Well, I grew up with uh, the pattern hermeneutic. Uh, I, I highly right. recommend John Mark books, uh, John Mark book, John Mark Higgs book on on uh, searching for the pattern because <laughs> it lays um, such a good backdrop of that. Right. But it's... Uh, there are some positive things about patterns, but it tempts us to toward ecclesial perfectionism. You know, having to do something just exactly, mm. um, maybe beyond what the message is to a pattern, and I think that's got to be uh, broadened to see both uh, what do we learn about God through that. Uh, it's uh, maybe a, a theological hermeneutic. What is God teaching us? What can we see about God? Uh, a, a redemptive hermeneutic. Where is this taking us? In other words, that that would be uh, the hermeneutic that I embraced a bit more in talking about slavery. Is you know yeah, the, the, target the target and the, and the arrow. arrow, and then uh, a spirit hermeneutic. What you know. What is, um, there's dimensions beyond what we can see that are communicated by the spirit. They won't contradict the Mm. word of God, but um, I believe we, uh, in the words of Francis Chan, uh, the spirit's forgotten God many times. Yeah. And Mm. it's interesting. I, uh, in my, this is a lot of what I have been writing on in my dissertation, but uh, one of the things I do in that is take a scripture that is often used in different ways. Uh, Ephesians five that talks about husbands and wives. And, and, um, I look at it through the emphases of, uh, a pattern hermeneutic 
through a theological hermeneutic, through through a redemptive hermeneutic and through a spirit hermeneutic. And it was kind of eye-opening to me to realize, well, uh, I need to broaden my lens to to gain more of what I believe uh, the Bible uh, God is, is teaching me in those in those things. So yes, I, I believe uh, again, the whole teaching on women in the Bible, um, our hermeneutic, how we view scripture is is huge. And uh, and yeah. I, I believe we are so trained to be, um, and our forefathers and restoration movement embraced the rational, uh, scientific method of interpretation. You know, that's what led to the literal uh, commands, examples, and inferences. Right. And um, it, it had a very profound impact on how we uh, tend to be I think tend towards legalism that I don't think as I read about our yeah. uh, restoration movement founders, I don't think that was the intent. In fact, there's some, uh, I, I didn't mm-hmm. uh, pull out a couple of quotes that I, I love. Uh, one of them is from Barton Stone and he says the scriptures will never keep mm-hmm. together in union and fellowship members not in the spirit of the scriptures which spirit is love peace unity forbearance and cheerful obedience this is the spirit of the great head of the body i blush for my fellows who hold up the bible as the bond of union yet make their opinions of it tests of fellowship who plead for union of all christians yet refuse fellowship with such is dissent from their notions and, um, you know, there's one more that um, in the early 1900s, uh, one of the restoration movement leaders, T.B. Larimore, he imagined a unity that um, says, indeed, I believe extremists, hobbies and hobbyists. And, of course, we use a different word for that. Hobbies were like things like holding on to uh, we need to not use instruments or women need to wear head covering. So not, um, I like to garden or I like to be a stamp collector, (laughs) but, uh, hobbies and hobbyists are cursing the cause of Christ today beyond the comprehension of mortal man. Unfortunately, some sincere souls seem to be determined to never recognize as Christians or have fellowship with any, save those who ride their hobby. Let me walk forever rather than ride a religious hobby and let me die today then be deprived of my Christian liberty. The perfect law of liberty is not the yoke of bondage, nor is it the law of slavery. It's never safe to assume that a certain passage of sacred scripture means a certain thing when it may mean something else and not mean what it is assumed to mean at all. And reasoning from that assumption may be false. And consequently, our conclusion may not only be erroneous, but even dangerous and harmful. But I shall not do that. I do not, shall not, and should not assume to be wiser, worthier, or better than my brethren. But it is ever safe for any and all of us to investigate, always being open to conviction and appreciating instruction and correction. I do too. I love that. I love that. And, you know, T.B. Larimore just exhibited that humility. You know, you hear that coming through that passage of, I would, mm-hmm. I would never assume to know something better than, than my brethren. Um, 
but he also submitted himself to, you know, he'd be invited to, to preach for all different camps of, of all the debates of the day and engage with all of them and refuse to denounce any of them. And um, mm-hmm. just a powerful ministry, baptizing thousands uh, in his ministry um, and never taking a stand on these issues that were so hot in the day, these, these hobbyists, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And that is so hard, I think, because it's as my convictions have changed. I have to remember, OK, it's I'm almost 70 years old, you know, and it's taken me. I mean, I probably I've read hundreds of books. I've done so much that, you know, tried to, I don't know Greek and Hebrew, but I've delved into lexicons and tried to talk to people who do. Um, Mm. But, you know, just, there is so much to learn. And once I see something differently, I have to remember to respect and show love for someone who doesn't. I just ask that they do the same for me. And, um, you know, I think that that's important to realize, um, even if I don't agree to be able to say, you know, um, I respect you. That is, that is plausible from where you're coming from. It's not what I hold to, but I see mm-hmm. how you get there. And cause if yeah. we don't understand how somebody gets there, we just, and just say, you're wrong. You're, you don't love God. You don't love the Bible. It's like, what is that even saying? Um, you know, and to to love and respect each other enough to, you know, to, to I don't know, to have love that supersedes all of it. Perhaps, uh, you know, I think of um, <laughs> James and John wanting to call down fire from heaven when <laughs> uh, in their youth. And when uh, things weren't being done the way they thought it should be done. And uh, Jesus didn't think that was a great idea. And thank goodness. Yeah. And yet I'm, you know, later on in John's life, of course, this is, we don't know for sure, but the thinking is that he was known as the apostle of love. And there's the stories that he was even helped into some congregations and, all he would say is love one another. I think, wow, that's a far cry from, can we call down fire from heaven? <laughs> Destroy these people who don't, who, who don't think like we do uh, and are doing, aren't doing it the way we're doing it. And, um, you know, I think oftentimes we're still a bit on a journey of wanting to call down fire from heaven uh, rather than, yeah. um, than love one another. Yeah. And you see a trajectory in, in John of, of going from that, uh, I guess you could call it legal legalism or, or whatever it was to this, this love, love, love. And it's amazing. You know, first John four, just how many times he says love in, in that one chapter. Um, you know, if, if you claim to love God and hate your brother, you're a liar, your religion's worthless. It's just very bold. And he, yeah, he's, he's saying, this is the target. Yeah. Um, and we so often focus on the arrows and, you know, I want to give you the opportunity just to expound on that. What do you mean by arrow and target? And maybe use, uh, if you're willing, use Ephesians 5 to explain what would it mean to read Ephesians 5, this, this household code, um, as a, as the arrow, as, as the pattern 
And what does it mean to look at it as the the target, meaning the redemptive goal? Um, how does that change the way you read this? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Well, if I read it from the pattern, I would read the roles of the household are clear. Uh, though all are to have submissive hearts in a marriage, the husband is the head authority. The wife is submissive. The husband should practice benevolent authority. Children are to be obedient to their parents and slaves, to their masters. And usually today we'd interpret that as employees. Um, uh, it emphasizes Jesus is subservient to God for all time and marriage is the illustration. And I think the forming tendencies of that would be it tempts one with an authority towards, towards power to view the other as less than, even though theologically this would be argued. And, um, you know, tends towards a forming of entitlement um, instead of uh, uh, self, uh, mutual self-sacrificing. Um, and the trajectory, I would say, Paul works within the cultural ancient Near East household codes, moving Christians forward in profound ways. He addresses wives, children, and slaves, which yeah. would be abnormal in a culture that considered them property. His charge for a husband to leave father and mother would have been radical in the deeply embedded patriarchal culture. And, um, you know, an emphasis would observe where, where might God be taking his people, relying on the Holy Spirit and prayer to take them where they need to go. It observes where barriers from certain people groups would, could be torn down and people would view one another as equals. It subverts the cultural mode by the model that appears points to something even yeah. fuller in the light of Christ. And I think it puts a person in a learner mode rather than having the truth wrapped up in their back pocket, yeah. that kind of a, a trajectory uh, yeah. hermeneutic. There's one of the most subversive texts in all of scripture embedded in this that I've, I've missed for most of my life. And then one day it just hit me. It's like, did he just say what I think he said? Because, you know, understanding the culture of the day, like you said, the, the household codes of the Greeks and the, the Romans, they would just address mm -hmm. the man of the house uh, the, the, the landowner or whatever. And it's like, this is what yours, you know, this is what yours are due from your subordinates basically. Um, right. and this is like addressing everyone, you know, by turn, this is how you live out, submit to one another. If you're a, a, the man or the, the husband, this is how you live out, submit to one another. Um, just as Christ submitted, gave himself up for the church. If you're a wife, this is how you submit to one another. If you're a child, this is how you submit. If, this, if you're a parent, this is how, if you're a master. And then the, the, the most powerful thing is like, he's saying, you know, slaves obey your masters as Lord. And that rankles today as I think it, it should in a, in a sense. But then he says, and masters treat your slaves the same way. <laughs> like, wait, did he just say masters obey? obey your slaves. <laughs> and I think that's what Paul's saying. It's like, you are not above obeying and submitting regardless of your station. Yeah. Uh, and it becomes such a much, a much more beautiful text when you, when you see the, the target, the trajectory oh, of where he's going. True. 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 Yes. Oh. Also in that, in that text, uh, you talk about, you know, the husband is the head of the wife and, and you have something very illuminating in your book about that relationship. We see that, um, typically read that as a hierarchical, um, head is on top, body flows down from that. Um, 
you you provide a different lens to see that metaphor that I would just want to give you the opportunity to share a little bit because I think it's it's beautiful and perfect for what we try to do in Common Grounds. Yeah, well, I love the whole thing of the mystery mm-hmm. that Paul is saying he's he's speaking of the mystery of Christ in the church, and he uses this uh, incredible metaphor. And uh, mystery is funny, you know, but it's someone being over somebody else is not a mystery. Right. <laughs> There's nothing mysterious about that. Um, and yet the, the unity between head and body is mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, the unity between husband and wife is you can't, it, it's, it's something spiritually that God does. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a deep unity and, um, you know, that would, you can envision, it's not a mystery, like I say, to envision it in a hierarchical sense, but, um, you know, a, a unity sense, it would be like a decapitation, right? Yeah. De- dismembering it. And, um, you know, I believe unity, the goal, I believe is unity of what he is he's speaking about there. Um, you know, regardless how of how someone practices it in their marriage, certainly the more we each practice what Paul describes in Philippians 2, laying down our mm-hmm. life for the other person, uh, the more unified we're going to be. Absolutely. Um, so do I believe in my marriage? My husband is, is passed away, but do I believe I was to be submissive to him? Yes, I do. Because... Um, you know, I am to be submissive to others to lay down my life. Was he submissive to me? Yes, he was. He laid down his life for me. And I saw it time and time again. Um, and I think the kind of, um, self-sacrificing we can gain by having the heart of Jesus, the closer we'll come to showing what a Christ like Christ likeness in the church and in our relationships with each other. And, um, anytime, um, you know, uh, there's a, another quote from Thomas Campbell, one of our earliest is he says, uh, a second evil is not only judging our brother to be absolutely wrong because he differs from our opinions, but more especially are judging him to be a transgressor of the law in so doing, and of course, treating him as such by censuring or otherwise exposing him to contempt, or at least preferring ourselves before him and our own judgment, saying, as it were, stand by, I am holier than thou. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah. And, you know, I, I believe a lot of what was intended to be built within a generation or two got lost. Yeah in these petty divisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the focus on unity, the, the polar star of our movement, um, often got embedded in how we find the right pattern and, and if we can unite around the right mm-hmm. pattern, but what you point us to in this book and what I, I fully uh, believe is that focusing on humility, focusing on submission to one another, um, rather than, you know, having everything right or having the right organizational structure and hierarchy, those, those are the things that help us find unity amongst mm-hmm. diversity um, and are so important for us to remember uh, today as we 
have a very divisive culture that has affected our churches very uh, detrimentally. And um, how can we have humility and submission just like Christ did in our churches? So, absolutely. Well, we're kind of getting close to the end of our time. So, I want to uh, give you a chance to leave us with a little summary of of what it is that you want us as your listeners um, to know and consider uh, from your book or from what you've learned in uh, in your journey. Yeah. Um, one, I I hope we can really listen to each other in humility. Um, you know, part of what I have um, felt a lot is even though I haven't had an ax to grind, uh, which I'm glad because mm-hmm. it would have been harder to approach yeah. with that. Um, I still, um, I love to teach. I love to preach. I love to learn. I love, you know, and um, it's hard for, for women to find opportunities to use their gifts. Um, and I, I hope people can realize um, and, and hear and listen to, I think, some of what, um, you know, women who have a lot of gifts to give and have had to honestly use them in the world mm-hmm. because they can't find a place to use them in the church. That's There's something that's that's sad to me but that we can all just be um humble i include myself at the foremost of that i need to you know i need to be i need to respect when others don't see things the way i have uh come to see them and uh treat them with the same amount of love i i love i wanted to share um rubel shelley is uh someone i admire a lot and he please he asked members to pray for the unity of the church repent of any tribal elitism in your own history and heart refuse to caricature or make fun of others mm-hmm. which dehumanizes people make jesus the focus look for evidence of god's activity and other people why can't i affirm what i see when i see the spirit at work in others lives when they're serving to the best of their ability, affirm it. Um, we've all received grace. Be, be part of a church that focuses on Jesus because it loves scripture. Study what the Bible says about love and reconciliation. Doctrinal soundness is incomplete. Difference is not deviance. Take some baby steps toward unity. It happens at the grassroots. Deep convictions are necessary for unity. Let's not sit in judgment of each other and don't be bullied by someone else's narrowness. And, um, you know, these to me help to re-envision unity. And uh, I've learned a lot as I've been reading, um, you know, from some of the, you know, people who, heroes who've gone before and, you know, have a lot of, of wisdom. And I just, um <sighs> I think one of the ones that hit me the most, there's um, uh, one of the early restoration leaders was Isaac Arrett. Um, and he said, 
uh, and this really hit me hard. He said, division and its roots come as readily to attempt to forbid that which Christ has not forbidden, as though an attempt to impose that which Christ has not imposed. Two things that strikes us must be kept carefully in mind. The necessity for free and unembarrassed research with a view to grow in grace and knowledge. It's fatal to assume that we have certainly learned all the Bible teaches. This has been the silly and baneful conceit of all who have gone before us. Shall we repeat the folly and superinduce the necessity for another people to be raised up to sound a new battle cry of reformation? Must every man be branded with heresy or apostasy whose ripe investigations lead him out of our ruts? Must free investigation be smothered by a timid conversation or a presumptuous bigotry that takes alarm at every step for progress? Grant that errors may sometimes be thrust upon us. Free and kind discussion will correct them. Hmm. Murderous stifling of free thoughts and free speech not only renders union worthless by the sacrifice of liberty, but will defeat its own purpose and compel in time new revolutionary movements. The absence of all rights to control our brethren where Christ has left them free. Such freedom sometimes alarms us. Creed-bound communities may lift their hands in holy horror at the latitudinarianism that we allow, but it's not worthwhile to accept principles unless we're willing to follow them to their legitimate results. And we insist that Romans 14 allows a very large liberty, which we have no right to trench on except with the plea of the demands of Christian love. And um, I, I love that. And, um, you know, his leadership and his hermeneutic moved many people toward a more Christ-like manner of formation. And that's my heart that we'll have. Uh, that's my, my deepest desire is that we'll have a humility to keep learning, to not feel like um, I or any of us have the truth all wrapped up in our back pocket, mm -hmm. to treat each other with respect and to keep looking at Jesus. Um, that's my, that's my goal. And, you know, i I just long to keep learning, to keep growing uh, as many breaths as God gives me. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jeannie, not just for this book that has been so powerful to me. I actually preached on this topic uh, about three weeks ago, and I quoted you from your book uh, because it was <laughs> just very helpful. Um, I continue to learn uh, from from you and, and from others, and uh, I thank you for uh, providing that resource and for modeling what it means to be a lifelong learner um, and to be compassionate, uh, to be humble, and to use the gifts that God has given you to glorify him. And so thank you so much for that. Thank you. Well, before we close out, I'd like to uh, offer you a chance to have a little fun with some lightning round questions. We often do this with our, our guests. So uh, let's see if you can answer some of these questions right off the bat. Would you willingly do karaoke? Oh, yes. I, I oh, would yes. do it. I, I, yeah. I love to sing and I, I yeah, love, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> awesome. In the morning, do you drink coffee, tea, or something else? I, and if you drink coffee, how uh, do you drink it? Oh, okay. Um, I, well, I try to start with a glass of water, but yes, I drink Good idea. coffee and I am a New Englander. I have, uh, I changed. I now drink iced coffee which iced I, coffee. iced coffee and I never thought even I in the would winter? even, even in the winter, I drink both in wow. the winter, but I guess I drink hot coffee in the hot summer. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so right. I do. Yes. 
All right. Well, what is your favorite junk food? Oh, my favorite junk food, um, probably pizza. Although, is that really junk food? I don't know. Um, you know, there's a there's a place we'll, up we'll the, give it to you. There's a place up the street <laughs> that sells Big Mac pizza slices. Oh my goodness, so good. Yes, yes. I mean, complete with the, yeah. the burger, lettuce, tomato, secret special sauce. secret sauce, and pickles on top, and a sesame wow. cr- and a sesame crust. Wow, is it good? Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. That that probably qualifies as junk food. Yeah, probably. It does sound. It's does really sound quite good. <laughs> If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, um, yeah, I, I was going to say um, to love like Jesus, but I guess that's a superpower that uh, uh, the spirit gives us, right? But you're probably talking there about something go. a little more marvelous. <laughs> um, no, you brought uh, it to a very good place. <laughs> that's that's fine. Um, so, yeah, since you took it in that direction, if you could ask God one thing, what would it be? Oh, I could ask God one question. Um, no, that's a really good question. I wanted, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is why is it so hard for us to see things the same? Um, but that's sin. You know, he's already answered that. There's sin, but just, um, I, yeah, I wish that there could be a, a why can't there be a way where you can just actually physically uh, reach down and hug me and uh, mm. touch me? Um, that's yeah. that's what I would long for. Just uh, you know the mm-hmm. the the physical. Yeah, that's beautiful. And finally, last question: How would you define success at this time of your life? Mm, I think being humble trying to grow in humility and and uh, passing on anything I can that helps another person know Jesus better. Um, that to me is successful if I can help people see Jesus a little more clearly. Mm. Wonderful. I think you have done that and will continue to do that. And uh, thank you so much mm-hmm. for this time that we've had together. And uh, thank you all for joining us for this episode. And I know that you have been blessed as I have by this conversation with Jeannie. Um, as you know, we have a vision to create and support gatherings of unity-minded Christians around the globe. Um, we want to imagine and, and see gatherings modeling unity within an incredibly divided world. If you have benefited from this ministry, then we ask you to consider making a monthly donation to the work that we do. Uh, You can do that by going to www.commongroundsunity.org backslash donate. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Have a blessed week. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts 
with a cup of coffee.